Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 10, verses 24 to 48, and I will be reading from the NIV version. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Good morning and thank you worship team and thank you Keith for reading the scriptures. Again, I want to welcome you to Warden. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we're so glad that you chose to be with us today. You know, there are many churches in the GTA I've been to some of them, and I know about a lot of them, but I have to say, 
Warden is my favorite. There's so many things I love about our church that I love about Warden. How about you? If you're online and you would agree with me that Warden is your favorite church, why don't you let us know in the chat? I have a lot of things that are my favorites. My favorite restaurant to go to is this little Mexican restaurant. They have these great enchiladas with spicy Diablo sauce. Oh, so good. My favorite movie of all time is Pride and Prejudice. The, one, the A&E version, though, the one with Mr. Darcy, is Colin, uh, Colin Firth is Mr. Darcy. My favorite book is called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. My favorite fruit is a mango. My favorite refreshing drink is a lime bubbly or buble, whatever you want to say it. And I could go on and on because I have a lot of favorites. And I think we all have favorites. And if we're honest, we want to be the favorite. I asked my grandson, Levi, who's here today. Hi, Levi. <laughs> he kept saying Nana. <laughs> I ask him all the time, who's your favorite? Is it Nana or Papa? And every time he says Papa and laughs. <laughs> well, I'm like my grandson Levi. God does not have favorites. In fact, impartiality is an attribute of God. He's absolutely and totally impartial in dealing with people. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Then in Romans 2.11 we read, For God does not show favoritism. Showing favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. It directly opposes the gospel, and therefore we shouldn't show favoritism when it comes to people as well. In James 2.1, it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, just to be clear about what favoritism is, according to the dictionary, favoritism is the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. As we continue in our series on the book of Acts, we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 10, verses 24 to 48. And 34, I believe, is a very key verse. It says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. With that in mind, I'd like to recap what has happened so far at the beginning of chapter 10. Here we see that God uses an interesting vision in Peter's life to break down some prejudicial barriers that he's developed over the years. Now, Peter wasn't alone in his prejudice. This was the mindset of the early church in general. The early church resisted acceptance of Gentiles and even resisted efforts to share the gospel with Gentiles. So God works sovereignly in this account to introduce the gospel to them. God wants to erase excuses for being exclusive, and breaking down those barriers of partiality was necessary because God had ordained the gospel to cross over from the Jews to Gentiles. And in this passage, we see that God shows Peter that the good news of the gospel was for everyone. 
Now, one thing I think we should notice about Luke's writing style is that when he devotes a large section to tell about something, an event, it's because this event is important and it holds significant meaning in the unfolding story of the early church. And this event is one of those times. And Luke emphasizes elements of the story. Several times he tells us the same thing over and over again. So we can know that this passage is extremely important in the story of the early church. We all should be really thankful that this event occurred because I dare say that most of us who are here today and most listening online are Gentiles. But that was not the demographic makeup of the church at the time. The church was mostly exclusively Jewish as far as ethnic and cultural makeup. So this passage of scripture is extremely important because it marks the transition to Gentile outreach by the church. Here we see a progression of events that happens that proves to Peter and to us that God does not have favorites. Now the first thing I think we need to notice is that before this could happen, God had to prepare people's hearts. In order to transition the church to include Gentile believers, God uses a couple of visions given to two prominent people. Before plunging the church headlong into the transition, he prepares hearts. He prepared the heart of Peter, and he prepares the heart of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. That's God's nature, isn't it? That's God's way. Before he launches a people into a new mission or a new arena of work, he prepares hearts. He prepares the hearts of those who are being reached, and he prepares the hearts of those who are doing the reaching. And I think that's how we should pray for any outreach strategy or missions trip or activity, that God would not only prepare the hearts of those who are going to receive the word, but that he would also prepare the hearts of those who are bringing the word. And here we see that God prepares hearts. And first, in Cornelius, we see that a need is revealed. Here's some things that we know about Cornelius. First, he was in the city of Caesarea. Now, Caesarea was the Roman capital of the Judean province. We know Cornelius was a captain in the Italian regiment of the Roman military. We're told that he was a Roman centurion. Now, it's commonly accepted that a centurion is a captain of 100 soldiers. So he's someone of considerable authority in a city of considerable influence. But Luke's emphasis is not on his military career. It's on his character. He mentions four positive traits in verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He, gives, he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Now, it's important, I think, for us to see what this man was like before he became a Christian. He was sincere, devout, upright, God-fearing man. But yet, he was not saved. If he was saved, there wouldn't have been any need for God to send Peter to him to tell him about the gospel. And I think it's really important to talk about Cornelius here because our experience will tell us that there's some really good, nice, honorable, generous, compassionate, and kind non-Christians. In fact, in my experience, some non-Christians act more like Christians than many Christians do. Uh, but here's the deal. They're still lost. They're still separated from God, and they still need to hear the gospel of Jesus, and they still need to accept God's free gift of salvation. 
You know, that reminds me of a story I heard about these two men. They had a jumping contest. One was an Olympic champion of the long jump who was in perfect shape. The other was a rather large, out-of-shape man who huffed and puffed just trying to walk. They decided to have a contest to determine who could jump across the Grand Canyon. Well, the overweight man, he could barely run, but he waddled up to the edge of the cliff and he leaned forward and he managed to jump two feet, but he fell to his death at the bottom of the canyon. Next, the champion long jumper warmed up and he ran as fast as he could and he happened to jump 30 feet, but he ended up in the same place as the first man, the bottom of the canyon. You see, no matter how good we are, it's impossible for us to make it to heaven through our own good works and our own effort. And although Cornelius, he was sincere, he was God-fearing, he was devout and generous and well-respected, and he prayed continually, he was not a saved man. So an angel of God appears to him in a vision, and the angel directs him to go and call for Peter to bring the message of salvation to him. Now, as I read that, the thought occurred to me, like the angel could have preached the gospel to Cornelius, But instead, God chose to use a person to tell him about the gospel. You know, God could write the gospel in neon letters across the sky. In my opinion, that would be a really effective means. But that is not what God chose. He chooses to use people like you and me to be his messengers. So here we see God prepares Cornelius' heart. And in him, a need is revealed. The other heart God prepares is Peter's. Just as God uh, revealed Cornelius' need for salvation, he revealed Peter's prejudice as well. I like the story of the little girl who couldn't dust the furniture to suit her grandmother, and her grandmother made her do it again, once, twice, three times, and still she wasn't satisfied. Finally, the child looked up and said, Grandmother, the dust is not on the furniture, it's on your glasses. Like that grandmother, Peter couldn't see the real problem. He needed to have his prejudice revealed and exposed so that he could see clearly. Now, Peter, he was a good Jew. He'd been brought up to not have anything to do with the Gentiles. If he touched one, even accidentally, he had to go home and wash. And Peter says to Cornelius in verse 28, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now, just think about what would have happened if this attitude of prejudice, if this mindset were carried over into the church. This kind of belief system would have been devastating to the spread of the gospel. Peter's prejudice ran deep. So God has to prepare his heart for what's about to happen. We see in the first part of the chapter that Pastor Warner spoke so well about last Sunday that the Lord lets down a heavenly picnic and the food at this picnic was still alive. But for Peter, the issue of it wasn't that it was still alive. The issue was what was on the picnic and what was on the sheet that God had asked him to eat for dinner. The sheet contained all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds and the Lord says, you're hungry? eat up. But even though the Lord gave him a clear command, he says, 
Surely not, Lord. Now, that's a pretty emphatic response. Actually, it kind of reminded me of my granddaughter, June, who was at my house this morning for breakfast. And she did not want to finish her breakfast. And Nana was trying to help her keep it, and to, to finish her breakfast. And she just closed her mouth real tight and said, Nope! <laughs> and that's kind of like Peter here. That's how he responds. Nope, I'm not eating it. Because of his upbringing, Peter refused to eat any of them. Peter is probably even proud of the fact that he'd never eaten anything considered unclean. We today, you know, we can have our own similar form of legalism. And sometimes we can even define ourselves by the things that we don't do. And there's nothing wrong with not doing certain things. But what is wrong is defining our spirituality based on the things that we refuse to do. And then thinking that we're better than someone else because we don't do certain things. And I believe it's important for us to remember that for the Jews, following those dietary laws was not so much a health issue, it wasn't a nutrition issue, it was an obedience to God issue. And after Peter protests, the Lord makes a powerful statement in verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. And with this one statement, God is beginning to crack open the hard outer shell of prejudice that Peter has. In fact, this prejudice against what was considered common was so ingrained in Peter's brain that God repeats the vision of the sheep coming down three times. Showing him once would have never been enough. He had to reinforce it over and over again. But when Peter, then he wakes up. And have you ever woken up from a dream and thought, boy, that was really weird? Well, that's exactly what happened to Peter. Look at verse 17. It says, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. I think another translation for inwardly perplexed might be freaked out. <laughs> Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. I don't think I've ever had such a quick answer to my perplexing dreams, but God is in all of this. And at the very moment, while he's scratching his head, trying to figure out what this whole thing means, Cornelius's men are knocking at the door. And God presented the opportunity for Peter to live out the truth that it was just revealed to him in his perplexing dream. Again, Luke keeps repeating aspects of the story throughout the chapter. He doesn't want us to miss the divine orchestration by God of all the details in this event. How else could you understand Cornelius, a Gentile military officer, being so eager and ready to hear what Peter, a Jewish fisherman, had to say about Jesus? And only God's work and divine communication through the vision would move Peter to travel to see a Gentile officer and proclaim the gospel to him. And here's where we take up the story now in verse 24. It says, The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. Can you see Cornelius' heart in this? He wants those he loves, his family and his close friends, to hear the truth about the gospel for themselves. And this is the moment hearts have been prepared for. And here's the second thing we need to notice about this passage, that the gospel is presented. God has done all the background preparation for his divine appointment. This is how God works. 
Then he gives Peter the perfect opportunity to present the gospel. Peter starts off his message by proclaiming the truth that just had become made real in his own mind, namely that God shows no partiality. God has no favorites. God loves every person, and the gospel is open to all people, all races, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all ages, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. And then in verse 34 and 35, it says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And here is where we see the heart of God. And that's the first point of Peter's sermon. The second point of Peter's sermon is about the plan of God. Let's look again at verses 36 to 38. It says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, Peter tells them, What has happened when it comes to Jesus? The plan of God revolved around Jesus. And every sermon recorded in the book of Acts has Jesus as its subject. Every Christian sermon recorded in the early church is purely gospel-centered. And Peter recounts for them what he himself has been a witness of. He was there when Jesus was baptized. He was there when Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was there when he did the miracles and his healings, and all of this confirmed his divine nature. But though Jesus was a great teacher and a healer and a miracle worker, that is not ultimately the reason why Jesus came, which leads leads to Peter's final point in his sermon, the purpose of God. You see, the ultimate reason for Christ's coming, his ultimate plan was to purchase the salvation of all who would trust in him. And notice how Peter continues halfway through the verse. They killed him by hanging him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here, Peter clearly communicates the gospel. He tells them about how Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. And he calls for a response that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So the question is, did Cornelius and those who had gathered there to hear Peter's message, did they believe in Jesus? Did they receive the gospel? Well, that leads to the fourth thing we need to notice in this text. And that shows us that God does not have favorites. And that is that salvation is received. 
Verse 44 says, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Now, let me explain to you what's happening here. Peter is preaching, and in the midst of his preaching, those who were listening to the message believed it. They received it. And as it says in verse 46, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. This confirmed the fact that God has no favorites and that these Gentiles are indeed legitimately born again. This was like divine certification that they were genuinely converted. Notice the response of the Jewish believers that Peter brought with him. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Can you even sense their stunned amazement here as the Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they begin to speak in tongues and worship? Peter speaks to his Jewish friends and he's like, who can withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It's as if they're like huddled together to discuss what has happened and they agree upon the implications of what they've just seen. The obvious response to them being genuinely converted was that they follow in obedience with baptism. Peter says there's absolutely nothing else that's necessary for them to do that qualifies them for baptism. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to adhere to any kosher laws. God has confirmed their conversion through the Holy Spirit, and these brand-new believers can profess their faith through baptism. These, too, can come home. These two can be saved. These two are our brothers and sisters. These two are a part of the church. And this is really important, and we dare not miss this. This story confirms that the gospel is for all people. Everyone and anyone may come. And I think it's such a tragedy when people allow racial or ethnic or socioeconomic divisions to enter the church of Jesus Christ who lay down his life for all. But sadly, it happens. There was this story that was told in the Daily Bread of an episode in the life of the famous leader Mahatma Gandhi that painfully illustrates how the church throughout time has struggled to come to terms with the racial implications of the gospel. The story talked about how Gandhi shares in, an, in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity. It seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. One Sunday, he attended church services and he decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back. If Christians have caste differences also, he said to himself, I might as well remain a Hindu. Now that story to me is so sad. How badly we want to say to Gandhi and to that church and to that usher, there is no caste system in Christianity. The old divisions are no more. God has no favorites. He's making a church from all people of 
all over the earth, and everyone is welcome. Everyone may come. But you know, as I see it, favoritism exists, even abounds in our world. It's everywhere. But the question we need to ask is, are we going to go along with society, or are we going to share the heart of Christ and reach out to society and all individuals with the love of God? Now, another thing that stood out to me about this passage is what would change the world began by changing one man's attitude. Peter's attitude was changed. Although he was still a little rough around the edges, God changed him. He revealed his prejudice and changed Peter's heart. And that gives us hope that if God changed Peter and revealed his prejudice to him, he can do the same for us as well and change us as well. I want you to ask yourself this morning, do I need God to help me to change my attitude towards certain people? Am I showing prejudice or partiality in my life? Now, the problem is that we can be just as selective with those with whom we're willing to associate with and share the gospel with as Peter was until God intervened in his life. Think about this. How can we as a church do a better job of making everyone feel welcome? And personally, how can you do a better job of making everyone feel welcome? Because God truly does not have favorites. He doesn't love one person more than another. He doesn't love one culture more than another. Each one is interesting and unique and special. But God has no favorites. God is above all the differences. He loves each and every human being. No one has more value than another. I know we often come across injustice and prejudice and partiality in our lives. I've even experienced it. Maybe some of you listening have been a victim of favoritism or prejudice. You may even have been neglected by your parents and you feel like your parents favored your siblings over you. They pampered them and gave them more opportunities. And you're hurt about that. Or maybe you applied for a promotion and you were neglected and someone who didn't even have as much experience and wasn't as qualified as you got the promotion. Or maybe you've even been a victim of a favoritism in a Christian ministry somewhere. Well, I want you to know that God does not treat you like that. He loves you. He cares about you just as much as he does others. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to commit your hurt and your pain to God today. You might be listening, and you think that you're too far away. You're too far gone. You've done too much and that God would never want you. Listen, God shows no favoritism in the invitation of the gospel. He loves you so much. And as you heard the message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that Peter declared to Cornelius and his family and friends, I declare that same message to you today. Look again at the conclusion of Peter's message. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And you can receive that forgiveness today if you put your trust in Jesus and you accept this free gift of salvation. He loves you so much, and that's the best decision you could ever make in your life. And if you do make that decision today, please let us know because we'd love to rejoice with you and journey with you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love for each one of us. 
Thank you, Lord, that you do not show favoritism. You love us all equally. You care about each one of us. And Lord, I pray that you would just help anyone that is here today that might be feeling like they're not loved or they're not as valuable as another person, that they're not as good or they haven't been treated as well and they've been a victim of of prejudice or, or favoritism in their life. God, I pray that you would help them to see that you love them dearly. God, I pray for each one of us as well that you would open our eyes to see clearly, that you would reveal to us any prejudice, any favoritism that might be in our hearts, God. We might not even think it's there. We might think we have none of it. But God, reveal it so clearly, God, and get rid of it. Take it out of our hearts and our lives and our thinking, God. Some of us may have grown up in homes where that was just so ingrained in us. Like Peter, when he was growing up, he was taught and taught these things, God. So Lord, I pray that you would just help each one of us to see what is really in our hearts and help us to change if that's there. God, I pray for anyone who is listening online or is here today that might be going through a struggle in their life, whether that's physically or financially or or spiritually, God, whatever it might be, I pray that you would minister to them in the way that they need it most today. And God, I just thank you for this privilege of of being in in your presence today. And I, I just ask that you would just help us and help us to just be the people that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. God bless you and have a great week.